Margaret. Well, I don't know about you, but as you were listening to that being read out, how many of you were praising the Lord that there was no lists, <laughs> but a whole chapter of uh, dialogue. So all the Lord's people say amen together and let us pray uh, before we get stuck in. Father, thank you that we have your word, that you have preserved this for us to read today, that we might be more uh, united together, more like the Lord Jesus. Uh, please help us as we humbly come before your word. Help us to sit under it and to learn from it. Holy Spirit, please be refreshing our hearts, renewing our minds. By your word, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, there was a lady sitting in McDonald's having her meal, as you do, minding her own business. Um, when she sees an older couple sat across the room from her in a, in a booth, I'm pointing that way, it just happened to point at an older couple, not you guys, but... Um, she sees this older couple across the room from her. There sat a husband and a wife uh, with a single Happy Meal. The husband takes out the meal and passes it over to his wife and watches on. The lady thought to herself, and she saw this, what a shame this older couple can't afford two meals. And so she, she got up, she ordered another meal, and she brought it to them and then and said, excuse me, I, I, I saw that you only had one meal, so, so I, I bought this for you. I wanted you to have this. And the husband looked up and said, that's very nice of you, but we have, we have plenty of money for another meal. We just made the, the decision that we wanted to share everything together, including our food. Now, the lady's already walked across and sort of made a bit of a fool of herself, so she inquired further, well... So why are you just watching your wife eat this meal? And the husband replied, smiling, it's her turn to have the teeth. <laughs> you know, it's very easy to get the wrong end of the stick, uh, isn't it, when we're witnessing a situation from far off. Uh, well, today we have in our text... There's an even more serious case of getting the wrong end of the stick between Israel and the eastern tribes. So serious that it almost causes war. But before we get there, let's just remind ourselves of where we were up to. We got to the end of chapter 21. We saw that God has been faithful to his promises. Not one of them has failed, praise God. God has set up Israel to live in the land he promised. But now after these long years of conquest... What will life look like for Israel in this rest? Will they be loyal? Will they be faithful? Will they keep the covenant and so be united with God and each other? Will the long-awaited peace and rest in the land last? You know, those are the questions that are hanging over Israel as we enter chapter 22 uh, together. And as we start in verse 1, it's, it's all seemingly going well, isn't it? In verses 1 to 3, there's just this wonderful commissioning service. It displays the beautiful unity between the eastern tribes and the rest of Israel, which Joshua has, has nothing but praise for and delights in retelling. And, and what really is remarkable faithfulness, remarkable loyalty from the eastern tribes. 
Have a look down at verse 1. Then Joshua summoned these tribes, the Rumanites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, yeah, You have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything that I have commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your fellow Israelites, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. And you know, these, these tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, they already had their land. If you were to flick back to Joshua chapter 1, you'd see this. But then in Joshua chapter 1, they are commanded to help their fellow Israelites uh, get their land until the Lord gives their fellow Israelites rest. And in this wonderful act of unity, they also pledge to help Joshua to follow all of Joshua's commands as they go about giving the rest of Israel uh, the land. They've bled, they've fought side by side with their, their fellow Israelites throughout the years of con- uh, conquest without once deserting together. They've been united, a band of brothers, if you will, carrying out the mission that the Lord gave them to do. It's remarkable faithfulness. It's remarkable loyalty. It's, it's beautiful unity between Israel Just think of the temptations that would have come along the way for these tribes uh, to abandon the rest of Israel. You know, we've got our land. Why should we bleed more? Why should we sacrifice more? But they didn't. Instead, they kept not some, but all of what they promised. They followed not some, but all the commandments that were given. And here they now stand with records of exemplary, faithful, loyal service, brothers, beautifully united, now released to enjoy rest in the land that the Lord had promised them. It's beautiful unity on display. And it's such a a, a joyful experience, isn't it, when we experience the unity of God's people United by the faithfulness of God, by the promises of God. United in who they are as his people. United in what they want to live like in covenant loyalty. Beautifully united together, the whole of Israel. But it's not, that unity isn't just for their benefit. It's also very important for the missional work of God. You see, the unity between God's people speaks to the world around them. It says, why would you do that? Why would you be like that? Why would you live this way? You know, the purpose of of Israel as God's chosen people wasn't just to have a land, but it was to be a light to the nations so that they would come to know and love the Lord as they do. That they would come to know the God who brought salvation to his people from Egypt and love the Lord like people as we've seen through Joshua, like Rahab, like others. Being united as a people is key in showing the world around who God is. And it's, that, it's the beauty of unity, it's the, the missional work of unity that carries through Scripture all the way through to us today, doesn't it? In Jesus' words in John 13, I, I, a command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, 
So you must love one another. That's beautiful, isn't it? Why should we do this? By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. John 17, in his great prayer for for his disciples in the church, Jesus prays that we would be united and that our unity would be visible. Why? So that the world may believe. Unity is both beautiful, it's joyful, it's missional. It's so important. The unity of the Lord's people is not only beautiful because it's just a profoundly different way to live compared to the individualistic, entitled culture that we're a part of. Our unity, our our surprising togetherness, our heartfelt care for one another, our walking side by side one another. Get the book, read more about it. All between a people who, who... that, that normal life just wouldn't ever naturally put together. It speaks to the world that there's something more going on here. Something special here. And if you were at the family meeting, you, you'd heard uh, a guy called Ben uh, speak about his church plant in Sweden in one of the most individualistic societies. And they have seen that it is the Christian unity on display in their gatherings that surprises the non-Christians the most. That is helping to shine brightly the gospel to them. Unity is a witness to the amazing work of the grace of God in Christ. Because it is a unity anchored not in what we have done, but all in what Jesus has done through his life, his death, and his resurrection. The unity of God's people is so beautiful, it's so sweet, it's precious. And when God saves us, he doesn't save us to be individuals, does he? But in 1 Peter 2, he saves us to be part of a people, a priesthood, a holy nation, living stones built together, unified we are united to be a body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12. We are, we are united to be his people and uh, to be the bride of Christ. Isn't that astounding? Isn't that beautiful? Bride of Christ. Unity is a joyful, beautiful experience for God's people. And it also shines brightly to the world. Of the one who we're united by. And if you're not a Christian, being part of that unity, being part of that people, that chosen people, beloved by God, called sons and daughters of God, that is available for you as well in Christ. There's a wonderful sweetness and beauty to the unity that we've seen in these first few verses between the tribes of Israel. And as Joshua praises these tribes and releases them to go and live in the land promised to them, we see that beauty, but there was also a concern for that unity. Because the eastern tribes 
land was on the other side of the Jordan River. And the Jordan, as we know, uh, was, is uh, not an, uh, an inconsiderable barrier to cross at times, but, but more than that, it was a psychological boundary that said that the promised land was on one side and then a, a third of Israel lived on another side. A bunch of God's people living away from the rest of God's people, away from the altar, away from the meeting place of God. And so even though Joshua is clearly full of praise for his fellow Israelites, he's also concerned in their living away from the rest of Israel. And so uh, he wants them to remain loyal. And so we see in verse 5 that Joshua has five clear commandments for them. Verse 5, be very careful to keep the commandment of the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience with him, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Love, obey, keep, hold, serve. In other words, keep the faith as you live away. Be loyal to the covenant that we made with God. And no matter the Jordan, we will be one together. We will be united. Guard your hearts. Keep the, the beautiful unity that we've experienced even as you go across the river. Keep being a light to the nations on the other side of the Jordan. And then in verse 6 to 9, Joshua then blesses these tribes. They return to the land promised to them with all the riches that they've required through the years of, of conquest, well set up for life. Life is good. Israel's beautifully, wonderfully united. Uh, Joshua has blessed them. The rest of Israel is, is, is literally waving them off uh, on the other side of the, the Jordan as they go back to the land that they were promised. But will it last? We'll have a look down at verse 10 together. When they, that's these eastern tribes, came to uh, Gileoth near the Jordan, the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, built an opposing altar there by the Jordan. When the Israelites heard that they had built on the altar on the border of the Canaan at Gileoth, near the Jordan on the, on the Israel's, Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. That didn't take long, did it? The moment that the eastern tribes put their feet on the other side of the Jordan, let's build an opposing altar. It's almost like the other tribes are at the other side of the river, just, just waving them, yeah, nearly outside. Hang on a second. What are they doing there? Dave, are you seeing this? Oh, no, no, this is, this, this is not right. Let's, they've thrown it all away already. Get that war drum out. Let's sharpen those spears. Let's go to war. But what's going on? Why are they like this? Why, why is it deteriorated so quickly? Well, because as the rest of Israel looked across the Jordan, seeing the opposing altar, this, this is, that's a big no-no. A rival altar, unsanctioned by God, where they were seemingly breaking the covenant. And so turning away from God, breaking fellowship with the rest of Israel, it's like saying, we don't, we don't want to be with you anymore. We're going to do things on our own. And so Israel gets ready to end the peace and the rest and go to war with covenant breakers as they see it. 
And there's something, there's something right about this, and there's something that's not so right about this. Firstly, it's right that Israel are concerned when they saw something that looked like it was dishonoring to the Lord. Israel really takes sin seriously here. They're ready to deal with it. And the question comes to mind this week is, are we? Or are we most likely to turn a blind eye rather than engage with dealing with sin. But Israel takes sin seriously and they're ready to deal with it. That's a good thing. But what was not right was that they immediately jumped to the worst of conclusions about their brothers and sisters across the Jordan and started sharpening their spears before knowing the facts. You know, we should never rush to the worst of interpretations. Should never rush the worst of interpretations. And this is just really where our cultures are at right now, isn't it? The, the, the whole cancel culture. You know, at, at its idyllic sort of best, there are people who feel de- deeply uh, about injustice and want to stand up for people who are being mistreated, but, but in reality, it's the people from all over the world patrolling the boundaries of social media, TV, and, and all other things, and when they witness from a distance a perceived injustice in their eyes, even though they're unable or unwanting to investigate the facts, they go straight to war, and the person in the firing line will rarely survive. But how often do we do this as churches? How often do we look across the Jordan at each other? I think we see something wrong and so we go to war. You know, for years churches have been, have been getting this wrong. For one example, the word charismatic makes reformed people nervous now. Because they think somebody's walked off an edge of a cliff. And the word reformed makes charismatic think that we're all dried up prunes with no joy and no spirit. People in both camps severely misunderstood, severely misrepresented because there are extremes of both sides who do sadly walk away from Scripture. But here's the issue. We are too used to throwing mud rather than walking across the Jordan and asking, did I hear that right? Is that that right? What did you mean by this? Let's work together. Let's understand each other. Let's bring this closer to home. Imagine, for instance, that we heard Emmanuel Norstow. Imagine, right? Look at me. Imagine. This hasn't happened. Imagine. Abby made sure I made that very clear to us. No calls to Josh, please. Imagine, for instance, that Emmanuel Norstow held an interfaith service. That's what we heard on the Christian grapevine. What would we think? Have they abandoned the gospel? Would we automatically break unity with them? Cut off all ties with them? How easy it is to think that we see someone do something wrong, but instead of going to investigate the situation and clarify, we start sharpening our spears. 
We'll come back to that in a minute. Let me just say, living in a way that sharpens spears before knowing the facts does nothing to build community. It tears community down. To the point where even if somebody has proved not to done what other people have think, it's too late because the mud's been thrown and it's not washing off. But here's the good news. And if you can see your passages, then follow with me through the next power. But here's the good news. Our passage doesn't stop here. Cooler heads prevail. And instead we get this beautiful pursuit of unity from Israel. A right way forward when we see things from a distance that look like sin, that looks like dishonoring from God, that looks like breaking unity. We have a step-by-step guide of what to do here. Firstly, the first thing they do is they gather a team of people to go across the Jordan to examine the facts. For the sake of unity, they didn't want to stay on one side of the river sharpening their spears. They went across the Jordan to see if what they were seeing was correct. They moved towards the people, verses 13 and 14. Secondly, for the sake of unity, they had the courage and the boldness to speak with the tribes face to face. Rather than let their own preconceptions of a situation be the determining factor, they got up, they went across the Jordan, and they spoke to them face to face. Verses 15 and 16. Thirdly, they clearly laid out their concerns about what they'd seen happening. Have a look down at 17. Was not the sin of Pyre enough for us? Up to this very day, we've not cleansed ourselves from this sin, even though the plague fell on the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry within the whole community of Israel. When Achan, the son of Zerah, was unfaithful in regards to the devoted things, did not the wrath come on the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. They think, in the language of those verses, They've broken faith. They've turned away. They've rebelled. They're turning away. They're in rebellion. This is covenant-breaking language. This is serious concern. They know that covenant-breaking doesn't just affect the individual, but the whole of God's community. And so they bring up Achan, the man who broke God's covenant by stealing the things that were devoted to the Lord. And what happened to Achan? As him, all of his family, all of what his own were put to the sword, were destroyed. And Pearl, this was where Israel gave themselves over to idolatry and sexual sin with Moabite women. So the Lord caused a plague to fall on Israel. 24,000 people died. And it was only stopped by the killing of those who had broken covenant with the Lord. And interestingly enough, in verse 17, Israel said they're still not over it. They're still feeling the effects. And so here's a serious concern. If you've broken the covenant, you know from our history what must be done. Sin must be dealt with. You know what we have to do. We have to go to war against sin. But how could you do this now? After so much, so many years of loyalty, the moment you step across the Jordan, you throw it all away. Why? 
There's a real sense of why would you do this? Don't make us do what we did to Achan. Don't do it. They go and investigate. They speak face to face. I have to say this now, in person, not on Zoom. They lay out their serious concerns of covenant breaking and what would be the result of that. And fourth, here's what I found. Oh, there you go. And fourth, Apple reckons it knows the way. Fourth, they are generous in their offering of a solution to a problem. Look at this generosity in verse 19. If the land you possessed is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. But don't rebel against the Lord or against us by building this altar for yourselves other than the altar to the Lord our God. Do you see the beautiful nature of this pursuit for unity? They don't jump to conclusions. They go to them. They speak face to face. They explain what they have seen and they, their concerns. Then they plead with them, please don't turn away from, the God, uh, from our God. Being generous in offering land on the other side of the Jordan to be united with them. If you don't like the land you've got, we'll pay for you to have more land. It's not an issue of money. Come back over the river. We'll pay. We'll sacrifice. Don't break unity. Don't leave the Lord. Be united with us. It's beautiful, isn't it? You know, interestingly enough, some of you may have already gone there, but Jesus tells us to have the same sort of beautiful pursuit for unity with one another, doesn't he? In Matthew chapter 18. Or you see something from afar off, you go to them. Rather than sharpening your spear, you go to them. You have the conversation face to face. You lay out your concerns, all in the aim that they would come back into covenant unity and be united together as a church. When we see this type of scenario, we, we sort of shy away from it, don't we? We don't want to go there. But the aim of these processes is not to kick somebody out. It's a beautiful pursuit for unity. The aim is reconciliation between the family of God. And what's interesting about Matthew 18, the verses that are preceding it? Does anyone know what Jesus says preceding what we've come to know as church discipline? Parable, story, of the shepherd who goes after the one sheep. Leaves the 99, goes after the one sheep, brings them back into the safety and unity of the fold. It's a beautiful thing. And then he tells us how to do it. If somebody cares enough about you, about your relationship with God, about his people, to walk side by side with you and say, hey, look, I saw this. Is that what happened? Please don't turn from God. How, how can I help? How can we be united? How can we resolve this? If someone comes to you and says that, that's a true brother or sister in Christ. What a friend you'll have who isn't presumptive but is a fact finder, who's upfront yet generous, 
who's brokenhearted yet wanting to pursue unity, wanting God to be honored. And if the Eastern tribes had done something wrong, then this process has done everything right in looking to challenge and gently restore them back to unity. It's a wonderful step-by-step guide. But we also need to know that we don't always get things right. You may go to somebody like the woman in McDonald's and have the complete wrong end of the stick. Completely misread the whole situation from afar, and that's exactly what happens here with the eastern tribes. The rest of Israel has got it all wrong in what they, they think they've seen. But what we see from the eastern tribes is, is response is just a model response to how to deal with accusations. In verse 20, 21 and 22, they agree with the Israelites. That if they've done what they've said they've done, they are right to be killed. Again, in verses 23 and 24. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and burn offerings and grain offerings to sacrifice, may the Lord himself call us to account. They agree. They see the seriousness of it. But there's a wonderful humility, isn't there, that helps them to pursue unity with the rest of Israel. It would have been, how easy would it have been for these eastern tribes to turn around to this, this, this party that have come over with all of these accusations of covenant breaking and how could you do this and we're sharpening our spears. How easy would it have been for them to turn around and say, how could you ever think that we should do such a thing? How could you think so poorly of us after all those years of sacrifice, those years of loyalty? We never abandoned you once. And at the first moment, you're sharpening your spears. How easy would it have been to be, for them to be like that? But are they like that? No. No, they're not. They are humble. They are calm. They lay out the facts of what they were trying to achieve. Verse 24 We built this so you wouldn't forget about us. Verse 26 and 28. The irony is that they were trying to achieve covenant unity. They were trying to show their loyalty. They were trying to set up something that for generation to generation, the other side of Israel would know that they loved the Lord their God. It was a visual demonstration of loyalty, of unity. For themselves to remember who the Lord is. For the other Israelites to remember, they remember who the Lord is. And for the whole world around them, on the other side of the Jordan, to know that the Lord is God. It's a beautiful thing of unity that they've done. How could you think anything good was happening from afar? How could the Israelites know all of that by just seeing? But in hearing the truth, they saw that it was a beautiful act of unity. Summed up in verse 34 with the naming of the altar as witness. 
a wonderful act of unity rather than an act of disunity, a witness to themselves. Remember to be loyal to the covenant. A witness to the rest of Israel. Remember we're with you, we're one. A witness to the rest of the world that the Lord and only the Lord is God. And so, they are beautifully united. We've seen a beautiful pursuit of unity from both sides of the Jordan. And then they rejoice in that unity. When the investigation party crossed over the Jordan, they must have thought, this is going to be the worst of days. But instead, they returned to the rest of Israel full of relief, rejoicing, gladness, praise, unitedness. And I love the line in verse 33. They talked no more about going to war with them. It's done. They're united. They're at peace. They're rejoicing. They're glad together. Come back to that imaginary situation in North Stowe. Imaginary. Where we'd imagined for a moment that we heard on the, on the grapevine that, uh, that Norstow had held an interfaith service. Instead of going to war, we pursued this pattern of unity. And we found that they hadn't actually held a service. But in fact, Josh had been invited to go and speak at this interfaith meeting. To which he took up the offer to preach the gospel clearly like Paul in Acts 17. Without holding back, boldly proclaiming that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. Opening up Isaiah to show that idols are worthless and everything that they're worshipping is worthless. And Jesus is the only way. And people came in their floods from that meeting into Northstow, Emmanuel Northstow, the next Sunday. How would we react then? How would we react then? Praise God. We would rejoice. They haven't broken covenant unity They've been proclaiming the honor and the the glory of the Lord to those who desperately need it. We'd be more united with them than ever. We'd be praying that God would save. Don't be quick to rush to the worst of conclusions when you see things from afar. Unity is a beautiful thing. It's worth pursuing. Unity between God's people is a sweet and beautiful thing because it's based on the faithful promise keeping God, bringing us together as his people. And it's a key part of our mission that displays the glory of Christ to the world. A beautiful pursuit of unity means that we're ready to cross the Jordan to speak with people rather than sharpening our spears. It means that we're humble and calm in our response, even if our accusation is wrong. And unity is to be rejoiced in. In the last three, three years and a bit that, that I've been at Grace Church, one of the most standout qualities that I have, I have witnessed amongst us is the unity that the Lord has given this church. It's something to keep pursuing with one another. It's something to be rejoiced in. Which is what we're going to do now as we sing together of how sweet it is when we dwell together in unity. As the band comes up, let's stand together. Let's pray together. Let's stand and pray.
Lord God, we thank you for the beauty of unity. We thank you that our unity is based not on what we have done individually, but all, it is all about you, Jesus. Your life, your death, your resurrection that has united us in yourself. That we are brothers and sisters in you, in Christ. It's a beautiful thing to experience. The joy of the unity that you have won for us. Help us, Lord. When we see things from afar, not to jump to conclusions, but to pursue unity. Help us, Lord, and on the, on the other end of the Jordan, when receiving those accusations, to pursue unity. And help us, Lord, to rejoice in the unity that you have given us. More and more. For your glory.